127 Liz, ladies and gentlemen, and I can't remember the first line. Welcome to Remember the First Time with myself, Mark Rawson, my good friend Charlotte Pearson. Hi. And of course, Mr. Paul Force. Hello. Welcome. Welcome, guys. We're here today to remember the first time. We're in the summer of 2019 at the minute, but we're going back 25 years as we move into episode four, which is Manic Street Preachers, the Holy Bible. We're going to tell you what we think of the album now, how it compares to how it might have been received back there, and uh, a few thoughts along the way. First of all, though, how old were you, Paul, when it was released? I was nine. You've got older. I have got older. Have you had a birthday? I must have. <laughs> what did you get for your ninth birthday? Um, Some aliens toys. You know when they made the, not all the toys out of the adult films Alien and Aliens? Yeah. Toys to do with that, I think. At nine? That's quite adult. <laughs> well, I can say I matured fast. <laughs> yeah, but you've stayed at that level yeah. since. <laughs> I level now at eight years old. At nine Plateaued years old. at yeah, nine. Yeah. <laughs> How about yourself, Charlotte? Three. You're still. always three. I'm always three. One <laughs> day. Age. I will get older. <laughs> oh, I haven't worked out which album will be on then. I was ten. I've, I aged on the last one. I'm still yeah, 10, I'm still 10, so a while until my 11th birthday. August 94 then, the Manics released their third studio album, The Holy Bible. What did we think of it? Um... Well, I didn't listen to it the first time around. I didn't either. No. No. <laughs> I wasn't anywhere near it. Still. No. Still. I'm still not a music fan at this point in my life. So, can't really comment on it. But, I tell you what, I'm bloody enjoying it nowadays. <laughs> Even more so after these last few weeks. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It wasn't an album that was one of my sort of defining albums from my teenage years. Nope. It's not one that I came to in my teenage years. No, nope, It's one that I had an awareness of. My knowledge of the album was, to be honest, as a younger child and as a teenager, seeing it, seeing the artwork and being fascinated and equally like, I suppose, terrified by it because it's, it's it looks like something from a medical journal, it looks like something that you'd seen like a Victorian book of, you know, uh, biology. So that's, that's my initial awareness of it. I was aware of the Manics, but not in the capacity or of that time of that album. How about you, Charlotte? Not at all, really. I mean, for me, this is kind of like a bit of a surprise going into this album, because to me, Manic Street Preachers are a whole, like, design for life. That's how I see Manic Street Preachers, and obviously, like, the most recent stuff I've listened to, but this sort of stuff was completely not even on my radar. I didn't even know that this sort of stuff existed, so it was a bit of a shock to me to see oh, this is what they used to be like in the very, very early days. It's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very different, isn't it, to what... Yeah. My, my, my biggest memory of Manix is circa 97, 98-ish, mm. so a good few years after this, when, obviously, they have progressed as a band. Uh, obviously, things like Mitch disappearing has a major effect on the band, and the, just a completely different style. So, yeah, I didn't get into this album in the slightest at any point until, well, the last three weeks I've listened to it far more than mm. I've ever heard it before. Mm. Paul, you and I had a brief conversation uh, the other day saying that, like, I've very much been about Manix and their anthems, mm. not yeah. their albums as such. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of albums that I've got into later, like, say, a few years uh, after this release, but... Uh, yeah, it's oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love the whole album, but it's this love for it is very new to mm. me. Very new to me. What did you think? To obviously you mentioned the anthemic sound of the Manics. Mm-hmm. You know, everything must go. We've tolerated this, all the stuff from that period onwards. But in terms of the sound of this album. It's a departure from Generation Terrorists and, and, the, and the previous works, but what did you think in terms of the way it's produced and the sound of the album? I love how punky it is. Mm. I really love how raw and how punky it is. It reminded me of The Clash, really. I There was a period in my life, 
my late teens when I was listening to The Clash a lot because I thought it was cool to listen to The Clash. It's cool to listen it to is, The Clash. It is, I know, but when you're like, oh, I need to find some new bands, and <laughs> I discovered them, and they had a major effect on me, The Clash at that point. And, yeah, it just reminds me so much of that time listening to um, that sound, and that's what I've thought a lot over the last few weeks as I've been listening to the Holy Bible, mm. thinking of The Clash. Especially, we'll talk about our favourite tracks and things later on, but especially tracks like PCP. It's so punky mm-hmm. and it's so, well, even it's one of their, their live favourites. And I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Charlotte? What do you think of the album as, as in its sound? I think it's really, I don't know, it's kind of difficult to describe. Like, it is raw and it's punky and it's very, very different. Um, but at the same time, I kind of felt it was like I was never in the right frame of mind to understand it, just because it's it's such a big beast of an album, I would mm. say, that it's difficult to be in the right frame of mind to actually unpack it. I think had I listened to it when I was maybe in my teenage years and I was in my like emo phase, I probably would have loved this. I would have been all over it. But coming into it at the age that I am now, and I've moved on quite three. a lot. <laughs> yeah, three. <laughs> Advanced. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, but coming into it at the age that I am now, it's, I don't know, I just find it really difficult to listen to. And I don't know, it's just, it's one of them things where I just don't think I have time to sit and really listen to it. And that's why I kind of feel like anything that I say about it is probably not going to fully do it justice because... I really would have needed to sit and listen to this for probably like weeks on end and really like comb through the lyrics to understand it. Do you think it's political enough? Jesus, can my <laughs> album be more? No, yeah, it's a bit, a bit of a fluff piece, really. Yeah. I wish they had an attitude. Yeah. I wish they had something to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's all just, it's like listening to Scout for Girls. They're harder than that. <laughs> no, I. I, I Yes, absolutely. What do you think, to Paul? What do you think about the sound of the album? Um, well, I, I, I was um, I was sort of reading up on the way it was produced, and uh, a couple of people have written a few things about it. But one thing that I did found uh, find about it is Dan Evans wrote in his uh, long reads piece. Um, he puts sonically to the Manics stood apart. The favoured production style of the era, typified by Oasis, is definitely maybe was lush and expansive, which, you know, is interesting given the date it was released. Uh, the Holy Bible, by contrast, sounded harsh and claustrophobic. Listening to it was like being trapped in the bowels of a giant machine surrounded by clanking pistons and ra- rattling rivets and vats of bubbling oil. And it sounds like uh, a, a, a hellscape, essentially. It sounds like this sort of industrialised hell that is what Dan Evans is, is describing there. And I kind of feel the similarities in how he's describing it. Maybe not as literal as that or as emphatic, emphatic as that, but certainly I get the similarities. It's got this real claustrophobic sound to it. It's got a a, a kind of furor and a, and, a, and a strain to it. It's like someone's trying to break out what they've been held in, like they're wrapped in chains. And I think that's evident in... Not only the production, but also the lyrics. Yeah, I'm going to say, do you not think that just personifies uh, Richie Edwards? I feel like it's it's not an album. It's a, it's a complete, fully created, fully rounded piece of artwork. It's it's not songs. It's not artwork on the, on the album sleeve. It, it's a completely combined, realised piece of artwork. But it's absolutely ingrained with turmoil and hate and disdain and disenfranchisement and all these other negative emotions that, well, negative emotions, but at times they are positively portrayed, at times they are going even further into the negativity. Do you think a lot of that is to do with, so obviously, Manics are coming from, from the valleys, they're coming out of, into the world, and they're three albums in. And they're going to have seen a lot of the world at this point. Three albums, well, two albums later, coming into writing their third. Do you think that has a lot um, to do with this? Because obviously, yeah, their their thoughts on America, their thoughts on um, not globalization, but just thoughts on uh, the modern world as such, 
uh, are quite negative. Do you think that's that's really shines through in this and what you've been saying? I think the the sort of the the audio vignettes that are at the start of the tracks um, that that uh, Sean Moore um, was able to find. I think they are an encapsulation or almost like a taster for what the songs are about. Mm-hmm. They they are like a, a little synopsis at the start, a little mm-hmm. prologue to what the song's about. And yeah, like there's there's clips, the snippets of Thatcher, the snippets of uh, one of the mothers of the victim of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, and they are just these songs so full of pain and so loaded with statement and loaded with, with agenda that it, it's it's hard not to think that this is from seeing or reading too much about the world and just thinking it's it's gone to shit. And there's um there, there's this there's this theory that um well, I say the the one of the descriptions for the for the band is that uh, that that uh, we, that's talked about with myself and um, our chat that we interview later on in the episode. We're talking about how the Manics look at the world as though the battle's been won, but they're going to keep on fighting, even if it's lost cause. And that seems like a really clear and really tight encapsulation of Manics at that time, who they were, what they what they stood for. And so, so you touched very briefly on their on the release date. So. Holy Bible was released on the same day as Oasis, definitely maybe, mm-hmm. and also on the same day as Shed Seven's Change Giver. So all three albums released on the same day in August 1994, but three very different albums. So how do you think it stands with what it was competing with at the time, or do you think it was competing with those albums, Charlotte? I don't think it was trying to compete with them at all. I think, for me, this album feels like it's made for the band and yeah, yeah. for their little club of fans. And I don't think they're trying to compete on the same level as Oasis are. I think like Oasis, trying to convert everyone, they're mm. trying to be the biggest band in the world, whereas Mannix are just happy to put out something that they love, whether it's a success or not, is... They don't care about that. They just want to put out something that they can be proud of because they want to make something that actually means something. That's what Definitely. it feels like. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think you're absolutely right there. And one word you used there really stood out to me, and that was their club. Mm-hmm. One thing I've found while I've been researching this album and just delving more into the manics, really, than I ever have done before is just how much, how passionate, and we're going to talk about some of the people who have emailed us and got on social uh, later on, but it does feel like they're not a click because that's almost uh, negative, but it's not. It's just like, it is this club of of Manics, Mm. and it's... I'm jealous. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much romance around Manics. It's not just a love of them. It feels like a real romance of a band from what what I've read about. Mm. And yeah, I'm like, I've missed out here. I genuinely feel like I've missed out. Yeah, I feel like there's not many bands where you get that sort of relationship where it's just so it feels intense. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you don't get that very often with most artists. I think the fact that it, what for me, what I've kind of extracted from reading, researching, and, and, and reading through the some of the the communications that we've had um, is it's personal to them because. These fans, these people that connect with this album of the band, it's on an emotional and physical connection where they are hurting in the same way or they are frustrated in the same way. There's so many uh, songs out there that speak about Richie's pain, about his disenfranchisement, with how frustrated he is with the current situation, whether it be politics or society or whatever. And there's so many of the fans that have said that that's what I was feeling at that time. That's what the problem was for me. Or have come to it and said, this guy gets me. Mm. This band gets me. They understand what I'm saying and they understand me. Or at the very least, I understand them. And I think if you can find that connection, it makes the relationship with the band all the more stronger and all the more personal and important. And yeah, I am jealous as well. Like It's been a long time since I've had that kind of passion for a band 
Um, you know, there's a couple of bands nowadays that, that, that I have a similar kind of feeling for, but not in the way that I think any of the Manics bands have for the Manics. Mm. Okay, so how do we feel about the album now? Do you think it's aged well? I think, I don't know, it feels to me like it's a piece in time. So it's like, it's very much there in 1994 and it's very much that thing and I don't think it would necessarily suit any time out of that in the Manic's career but I think the themes within it are very relevant now especially the uh, the political themes that are within it and the you know the things with America and all these different things I think that's you know what what's going on now yeah it's life moving in cycles isn't it yeah and it's almost yeah. as if wow these these statements could be very much about the present day yeah yeah, yeah I don't necessarily think it's timeless, but I do think, like you say, the messages, the lyrics, the themes are timeless. Um, I don't think it's actually aged too badly. I do think it's still quite... I think it still would have a place. Not necessarily radio-friendly songs, but then, you know, not many of the songs were radio-friendly no, no. in the first place. But I do think it would have a place in the modern world if it were mm. released now. That's I why think, I that's why I think that it has aged well because it's not radio friendly and it's as Charlotte said before, it's they've written this album for them. They're not doing it for anyone else. And that's why I think you could literally take it out of ninety four, chuck it out in twenty nineteen. Would it be as popular? Maybe not. Mm. But would they care? No. Well yeah that's <laughs> true. What, what's what you've got to remember as well is it wasn't trying to be Britpop. Yeah. It wasn't trying to uh it wasn't trying to stay on the, t- uh, the coattails of, say, shoegaze or American grunge, even though, in my opinion, there's a load of influence from American music in their album, and, and I will touch on that once we get an opportunity to, but I don't think it's trying to be anything other than itself, and I think that is a massive benefit to it. It doesn't want to be this genre, it is just itself. How do we feel about the album, though? What's uh, what's your favourite tracks? I'm struggling to find one, if I'm honest. As a favourite, <laughs> I can't single one track out on the album. I've got a few, but what do what do you guys think? I'm I'm gonna say PCP and Revolve, two of my favourites on there. But then I also like the more chilled out tracks, like This Is Yesterday. Yeah, I my the one the one two hit of Archives of Pain and Revolve, I really really like. I think. Archives of Pain is like what the darkest song. It's yeah. probably the darkest song on there. You might disagree with me, but you know you're welcome to disagree with me. That's for the listeners as well. But honestly, Archives of Pain and Revolt, I really, really like. Um, what gets me is just how loaded the lyrics are in Revolt. It's essentially the entire history of Russia and mm-hmm. the rise and fall of communism within one song. Mm-hmm. It's so brilliantly, cleverly lyrically concise yet it sounds like the Rocky Horror Picture Show yeah. <laughs> and I really, I really like that I like it but honestly I think Revolve is incredible I, that, I kinda, is, that is a yeah. good analogy yeah. <laughs> I kind of think it's purposefully meant to sound a bit like a camp show tune though I don't know whether they were aiming for that but as soon as as soon as I came back to the album and had a couple of listens to it I was like this is just a time warp. <laughs> <laughs> but I, really like I had not it. noticed that at all. But now you put it in my head, that's all I'm going to hear. Yeah. I've had it in my head all week as well. Mm. Well. I, well, I was humming it when I walked in here tonight. Because <laughs> I literally can't get the song yeah. out of my head. And that's why it's got to be a standout track for me. I think it's fantastic. I, I, I like this was yesterday as well, but yeah. it seems the most accessible. And it seems almost like the producer or some of the other guys said, Richard, come on, you've got to lay off it a little bit, mate. Come no, on. I know what you mean. Yeah, it's it's a great track still. How about yourself, Charlotte? Um, I think for me, Archives of Pain, like what you were saying, is really heavy and I really like that. It kind of reminds me of the music that I was listening to when I was 14 and I do like it a lot. Um, and probably faster as well, but yeah. I don't know whether that's just because it's the most accessible it's very easy to get into. It's very catchy. I really like that one. Yeah, I like that. And uh, whenever it comes on, I have just thought about their performance at Glastonbury, 94, which, of course, <laughs> we spoke about on the last episode, and you should mm-hmm. go and check out. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that it does. Every time I hear it, I keep mm. thinking of that performance, because, well, as yeah. you know from our last conversation on it, 
that was one of my favourite um, performances at the festival. It's just fantastic. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's some incredible tracks on there. Another of mine is um, Four Seven Seven Pound, mm-hmm. which I believe is Richard talking about his uh, eating disorder. Yeah, and you can it's it's just yeah it's so upsetting listening to it. <laughs> the lyrics within they're just uh, yeah they 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 really they make me feel. Well, they make yeah. me feel. Yeah, <laughs> Richie in an interview um, told the enemy soon after uh, when he went into hospital for um, for some uh, periods of self harm during the summer of '94 in relation to to you know uh, four stone seven pound. He says, "I thought my body was probably stronger than it actually was." So. It seems as though Richie's constantly trying to find the limits of his own self, whether mm. that's psychologically or physically. And yeah, I have no doubt that that's autobiographical. I think you know what I'm doing there. Mm. Mm. Well, speaking of autobiographical, we're going to talk biographical. Are we? Nearly? Is it biography ish? We're going to move on to a little interview with. Steve Nace. <laughs> Who is? See? Do you like the link there? It's uh, oh, alright. Like, like one piece of chain threading into another. <laughs> yeah, we're going to uh, move on now to uh, this episode's interview, which is with Steve Nace, who is the author of Riffs and Meaning, Manic Street Preachers and Know Your Enemy. Tell me a little bit about what to expect, Paul. Uh, so yeah, as you say, that's the, that's the chap we were talking to, Steve Nace. He's based in uh, Ontario in Canada, um, original from the UK, and we have a chat about the album, about the Mannix, about Mannix fanship, and as we've kind of touched on already, about how a lot of the songs, um, lyrically and thematically, are still very relevant nowadays. So yes, yeah, Steve, what initially brought you to the Mannix? How did you discover them? So um, back in the early 90s, I was, uh, I was, into, I was into metal, I was into... Uh, Bands like Guns N' Roses and Metallica, and uh, it wasn't really until um, they released the single Australia, which was the last single from their record, Everything Must Go, when it kind of all just uh, clicked. I got Everything Must Go as a Christmas present in, uh, in 96. Uh, for my birthday, the following year, I got uh, Generation Terrorists, the Holy Bible, and the summer of 97. So a few years after it was released, but I don't think I could have dealt with the Holy Bible as a 14-year-old. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, the Manics have um, been with me since um, since my sort of like mid-teens. I'm 38 now, and it doesn't look like they're going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, been a real important part in your life and in your identity, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's no exaggeration to sort of say that in a lot of the cases, like, life decisions have been framed by certain aspects of the Manic Street Preachers. You know, when I left school, I left school when I was 16. Um, and that was the year that I discovered the Manics. And because it was the mid nineties, relatively good economy and things like that, I actually managed to get like a full-time job. So I was a 16 year old with a lot of money, had my fake ID and I would go and have a few drinks and things like that. Um, but eventually because of just being a Manic Street Preachers fan and almost kind of self-educating myself, I felt I should go back to college and study again. So that's exactly what I did. So for three years, I went, I, I quit my job and I just wanted to be, uh, yeah, I just wanted to be a student again, which had never happened to me in all my years of school. I can see and understand how important and how impactful the, uh, the music and the band have been on you, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, I, I come from what I consider a, a kind of a working class background, and none of my like my parents uh, didn't go to didn't go to uh, college or a further education, um, and it wasn't really expected of me either. Really, uh, you know, I left school at sixteen, just as my dad did, went into work, and I probably would have stayed there if if I hadn't discovered discovered the Manics. I think, um, you know, they made they pointed me in the direction of books and films, philosophy stuff that I just wouldn't have been exposed to. I still hadn't come across Marx or anyone like that, you know, until uh, until the Manics came along and just ended up, uh, yeah, kind of pointing me in those directions. And um, I, I went and studied uh, media and film. But then a few years later, I, I studied with the Open University and I studied politics. And I think it was good that I had 
years in between those to really uh, appreciate that that education. I think um, I think Richie in uh, one of his quotes, Richie Edwards says something about how he, he he felt that education should be something that should be truly appreciated and savoured, and he felt a bit despondent about a lot of students at university. Uh, he yes, studied uh, political history, I believe, and. I can't think of another band who have done this. No, um, you know they were they had an intelligence that uh, a sense of um, aspiration was what I was thinking of with the Manics. Yeah. So, uh, at what point uh, in your education or in your uh, experience with the Manics did you think, right now I have to write a book about these? Because your book Riffs and Meaning, Manic Street Preachers, and Know Your Enemy. It's it's Obviously, concerning the album, Know Your Enemy, but you refer to the previous albums, you refer to the albums that uh, followed them, uh, and obviously you talk about the other fans that have had an impact. So at what point were you saying, this is where I need to write this book, and what what gave you the impetus to do it? It always been kind of on my mind, actually, to do something. I, I'd written a few bits and pieces about the Manics, um, uh, you know, just for little blogs and things like that. And um, um, I, chose, uh, I chose Know Your Enemy because... I felt like it was, while it's not, it's not exactly a halfway point in the Manix, uh, our discography, um, it is kind of a halfway point in their career. And it's a good way, uh, it's a good record to kind of look back uh, on their previous records and a good way of looking forward as well. And I know your enemy, it's kind of an anomaly. Um, it's a bit like the Holy Bible in some respects. It's kind of out there on its own really it doesn't really make much sense mm-hmm. um but to me it kind of does um it was a chance for the band to sort of be as snotty and punky as their debut record uh to be as antagonistic as the holy bible and then you look at the records that they made after that and you realize that they don't make records like know your enemy anymore because basically it it, it pissed off too many fans it narrowed down fan base so any casual listeners that were picked up from like everything was go and this is my truth tell me yours were pretty much like well that's enough of them now they're hanging out with castro in cuba yeah yeah, although i i i loved it they pull focus on certain aspects of history and politics and that record for me opened up this kind of other world you know by going to cuba and meeting castro and talking about chomsky and you know, I was just like, okay, I've got to read that now. I've got to read this. I've got to look at this guy. You know, it was kind of just that thing. And that's, that's the great thing about the man. Your Enemy is a, is a record, I think, that does that quite well. It, it sounds like it's uh, an education as much as uh, entertainment. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the Holy Bible in your book as being something like a daunting task to you. Did Do you think that it's always been a case that uh, the Manics fill their albums with a lot of information and a lot of education as well as just making good music and making songs for people to dance to and jump around to. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, and I think the Holy Bible is is very uh, daunting record when you kind of look at it. I mean, it's called the Holy Bible, which is uh, a task in itself. But, yeah. you know, um, I came to the Holy Bible uh, in 97 but yeah, like it was, um, it was a hard, hard record to get into initially. Um, it, maybe even it took a year or two really before it finally clicked. I saw the band uh, live in '98 when they were touring. Um, this is my truth, tell me yours, and they played a few tracks from the Holy Bible. And in the context of their song, um, it kind of worked, and it kind of made me go back to the to the album and listen to it again. I don't know, I was, I, I guess I was just a little older and a little wiser and ready to to have this kind of difficult music. Although, I mean, it, it initially probably did feel quite difficult, but like a song like Faster, if it comes on at like a, a indie disco or something like that, like it's just the most like breathtakingly brilliant song to dance to. So, I mean, you know, there's a bunch of great pop hits on that record considering its reputation for being so dark. No, I, I agree. I mean, um, Revolt. I've, I find myself listening to it, and it's it's in, it's actually quite glam, and it's old school heavy metal, and a lot of hair metal, and a lot of glam. I feel in some of these tracks, and you can see that obviously in Nicky Wire in his outfits, and in the kind of early looks of them as well. Um, but it, you're right; it, it comes loaded with uh, 
loaded with backlog and loaded with statements and loaded with expectations, I think, by fans. And it's yeah. still a very rocking record, to be simple. It is. It is, absolutely. I mean, it's got its darker moments, like, uh, you know, like musically darker, uh, like Intense Something of Evil, which is uh, a difficult yeah. song to do. I mean, you can't do much to that song other than just kind of stand in silence while the what kind of washes over you. Um, but yeah, that, that's a good one. Like Revol, it definitely has like a clan element to it. And uh, I think it's um, if White America told the truth uh, for one day, its world would fall apart. Has almost this kind of show tune esque, mm. uh, this kind of like nineteen fifties esque uh, like show tune kind of thing about it too. Yeah, it's a pretty extravagant record. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it did. It did take a few years for it to, to sort of finally click with me. Um, but I, I just feel like I needed to be in a in a more mature place, I suppose, to really experience that record properly. And certainly, you know, as you mentioned, uh, some of the some of the themes that are covered within that album are incredibly dark. And uh, Archives of Pain is. The, yeah, the, the 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 sample beforehand is um, from a mother talking about uh, Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, and that's not the kind of thing that you'd expect on your standard kind of rock record in 1994, let alone nowadays. I suppose it's it's uh, yeah. no no way. Yeah, I think I I've always thought of the record like I like to be honest with you, I listen to tracks from the, the Holy Bible here and there, but there's probably only like two or three occasions in an entire year when I will listen to the whole record in, as a whole, because it's a difficult one to sort of be in the right frame of mind for. I don't think you can fake it. Like, I don't think you can sort of, you know, be in a happy place and put the Holy Bible on. Um, I don't think it would feel right because I think it's a record that, that hates you. It's actually a record that does, that doesn't like you as a, as a listener or as a person. It's holding you responsible for almost every lyric that's on that record. And uh, that's a hard thing to deal with from a pop album, you know? Yeah. I think there's a there's a quote from your book actually where you're talking about uh, talking about again that album. You say the losers still lose the war, but the battle rages on internally. So it's a case of fine, they've accepted defeat, but they're still going to continue stewing on it, I suppose. And and the whole yeah. album is a is yeah intent. Well, that's that's the manics in a nutshell, really, as well. Like they they do put their sort of flags on on causes and uh, and. Uh, people from history who are who are losers mostly who have lost in some respects. Um, mm. That's always one of, the, one of the intriguing things about the Manics as well is that they, um, you know, it's it's a counter narrative to the uh, to the sort of neoliberalist outlook of uh, of our existence. I think you know they they pull out moments from history uh, or figures from history who have uh, in some way uh, you know lost that lost that war on you know to neoliberalism basically but they, their their stories are still important that's the thing you know like a guy like paul robeson who they wrote a song about on know your enemy you know the world's a better place for knowing him well even even, even their more anthemic out uh, tracks like if you tolerate this it's it's arguably more relevant nowadays with sort of the rise of populism and far right in it's various forms across the globe than it was when it was released. Oh gosh, yeah, it really is. Yes, um, yeah, that that's. I mean, that song is about the Spanish Civil War, but uh, you know, we're, yeah. we're living through a period of time right now which uh, was very is very reminiscent of those moments before the Spanish Civil War and before the Second World War. If you don't learn from history, you repeat the same mistakes, don't you? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and that's the great thing about the Manics is that they do they highlight these. Uh, these mistakes, these misguided figures. So, what would you say it means to be a Manic Street Preachers fan? Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really tough one. And I think Simon Price, the um, the journalist, music writer who wrote the book Everything, um, uh, which was a book about a biography of the Manic Street Preachers um, from their sort of early days up until '98. He called it Everything, and I think that's pretty much sums up what it's like to be a Manic Street Preachers fan. That the manics do mean everything um as i said like previously um you know a lot of important life decisions have been made due to something that the manics have either said or quotation that i've read on an album sleeve or something like that 
you know, they've guided me towards things that I would just never have, uh, have never have seen. And then not actually not musically at all. There's not a band I think that, that they've ever really pointed me to mostly literature. It's mostly, it's mostly literature and film and philosophy that they've pointed me towards. And that has, you know, not to sound big headed or anything, but it's increased my awareness, increased my intelligence and my, uh, understanding of the world i suppose and i think that that is the most important lesson that i can sort of take from the manix fantastic um steve it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you um well i, I studied history at university and had i been more into the manix during my tenure i think i would have probably knuckled down a bit harder as well <laughs> yeah Ladies and gentlemen, remember the first time we are looking at the Manic Street Preachers Holy Bible, the album as a whole. You've heard our thoughts so far. But what about the singles? Faster, Revolve, and She's Suffering. Were they the correct singles? Charlotte? Um, I would say yes, mainly because all those three songs are possibly the most accessible ones on the album. So, in that respect, they were probably forced into releasing them once. You say forced into, but only Revolve's one of the singles. What should, yeah. we, what should we release as a single? Oh, the history of the of the, of the communist political spectrum well, in a song. Yeah. Everyone has to write a song about something. Yeah. So. I think that could possibly <laughs> pass people by, though, as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Because no. it's just sharp, fast, punky, and people like that. Do you think they're the correct singles? Yeah. Quite frankly, yes. I, I would have chucked This Is Yesterday in there just because of what you like you said earlier. Mm. It's just so accessible. It's just so like, come on, leave it out a bit. <laughs> right, so we can all get on board with. I, I, I agree it could have been a single, but I also think, could you see the Manics on Top of the Pops playing that with an acoustic guitar? Oh, no. No. No, I they think it would have been well received. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think it would have been well received. But, oh, yeah, but, but when when have they ever done... At that period, they weren't doing stuff that was going to be commercially viable. Exactly, like we've said. Like we've said, I, I think they probably chose those three because those are the three that they want to release. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, we're doing it. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think we've got any qualms with the singles, have we? We're ticking the box, are we? Correct. What sort of influences do you think they had? Um, I think what's... I mentioned earlier about uh, them listening to American rock and American alternative. I think there's a clear link between them and the Washington hardcore scene, like the Washington DC hardcore scene. Mm -hmm. So bands like uh, Shellac, bands like Fugazi, Husker Du, I think they really had an influence on the Manic sound, along with... um, sort of more hair metal like Guns N' Roses which they've said tons of times when it came to the Holy Bible that, and in general that the Manics wouldn't have been a band without Guns N' Roses and I think what's what's quite nice is Shellac's uh, one of the members of Shellac is um, a guy called uh, Steve Albini and he ended up being the producer on their uh, Journal for Plague Lovers album which had the uh, artwork produced by uh, the lady that did Jenny Savile, who did the artwork for the Holy Bible as well. So there's this real kind of cyclical nature of the influences and the past coming back around again in Journal for Plague Lovers that was there and present in more obvious and more implicit forms on the Holy Bible. But yeah, I, I, I really think that in terms of who they were influenced by, far more than people give credit for is the American kind of alt scene, American hardcore scene. Um, and of course, as you've mentioned, the punk scene. Um, how about yourself, Charlotte? Have you got any thoughts on where the music's brought bands from or where they got the music influences from? I agree with what you said, really. I know um, James Dean Bradfield said he was listening to a lot of um, 
Girls Against Boys, which is a Washington DC indie hardcore band. So I guess that fed into it. <laughs> exactly. And then yeah, bands such as The Clash. I mean, you can hear that within the music, and also the way that they've chosen to dress. That's very much taken from the way that The Clash's aesthetic was. And like you say, it's all Guns and Roses. They've just had such a massive influence on them as mm-hmm. a band. Like it's really clear to see. Saw them at the weekend, Bannets. They covered Guns and Roses. Sweet Child of Mine. Mm-hmm. There you go. Not the best cover, to be honest. But it's alright. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of um, the guitar was fantastic. In British, wasn't as good. Ah, well, anyway, yeah. I think in terms of British bands, um, as you mentioned, uh, the Clash, but also Echo and the Bunnymen have mm. played a real important part in um, the identity of the Manics. Their um, period of wearing sort of stylized uniforms, military uniforms, is obviously fed into their style at this time as well with the sailor shirts with the um, army shirts etc um so it's all this kind of weird amalgamation of not necessarily the most obvious sources of influence but uh, it's, it's what they are it's what, what they became and i think in terms of who they've influenced um i know that i grew up and i know to a certain extent mark you grew up listening in our mid to late teens, listening to a lot of post-hardcore bands like 100 Reasons, Hell is for Heroes. And they were massively influenced by Huskadoo as well, and they were also clearly influenced by Manic Street Preachers, especially Hell is for Heroes, given the fact that they're from Wales as well. These these bands all kind of had this kind of pensive, strained, emotional arc to them, which Manic's always had. They were very much about, even though they were angry, they were very much wearing their emotions and the half on the sleeve that you couldn't hide what they were angry about. Hmm. They were telling you what they wanted to tell you. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. How uh, how was the album received? NME, 9 out of 10. Q, 4 out of 5. Rolling Stone, 4 out of 5. Pitchfork, 8.4 out of 10. Fair? I would say so, actually, yeah. yeah. I don't think you can look at this as a regular album. It is a complete concept piece. Mm-hmm. I think it has to be taken. Standalone. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think those uh, those figures are fair. I agree. I agree. I can't... I couldn't see it getting anything like two out of five. That would have just been a bit of a travesty, really, wouldn't mm-hmm. it? Mm. Deserves, it deserves the critical acclaim it obviously got at the time. Where did it position in the chart in the UK? Six. I'm just surprised it got that high, to be honest. Yeah, I am, actually. I, I, you always assume it's going to be this kind of a lurker. Yeah. But, yeah, that was a shock to me. I didn't think it would have charted. Then again, you look at some of the album charting positions of the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and it's ridiculous how high up the really alternative bands are charting. And I think maybe it's just because of that period. Album sales were just so great that you could see these kind of one week in the chart, then disappear. Mm. Or, you know, if it's a massive album, it just remaining up at the top. Yeah, for so it's, long. For it's so just long. not what we used to nowadays. And I miss that to a certain extent. Yeah. Album sales don't mean as much nowadays. So, no. Yeah. Come out to uh, play live these days. Yeah. So it's certified gold in the UK, so over half a million copies worldwide as of 2014. I think it may have been streamed once or twice since then, too. <laughs> In 2011, it ranked number one in the enemy's 50 darkest albums ever list. Well, back in 1994, when it was released, it was ranked number five in the enemy's end of year list of best albums. But, all that aside, what actually matters? <laughs> Where are we going to put it in the Remember the First Time charts? All the albums I've had so far. Glastonbury stands out on its own. It's our official festival of the podcast so far, because we've only covered one of the buggers. Albums though, we've got at present the charts are at number one, Pulp, His and Hers, at number two, Blur, Part Life. Where is the Holy Bible going to debut? I ask you, Miss Charlotte Pearson. I think maybe number two. Number two? Yeah. Paul. I was going with my gut, and my guts usually know their shit. And I'm saying number two as well. Oh, <laughs> I was going to put it straight in at number one, genuinely. Really? Oh. I, but I don't know why I love his and hers. But I might have just got swept aside by the romance of everything that I've read from Manic's fans and just what it means to them. 
I was going to suggest number one, but I'm happy to go at number two. Bloody love his owners. I think it's influential, and I think it's an important album, but I don't think it's got the accessibility that propels it to being higher. Yeah. I mean, we don't know where it's going to end up later in the in, in history, whether it's going to be still in number two or further down, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. If, if everything else we cover is rubbish, we can stay at number <laughs> two. Well, we've got our waste next. <laughs> Don't spoil the surprise. (laughs) They know. (laughs) Okay, welcome, Holy Bible, into the Remember the First Time charts. I know it's the chart you're bothered about. You come in straight at number two. Welcome back. So if there's one thing that keeps blowing our minds at the moment, it's not just how many of you are listening to us, which we're very much appreciating, but it's how many of you are getting in touch with us and sharing your stories about the subjects we are covering. We're going to look at some of the social highlights and then we're going to cover some of the emails, which, uh, yeah, it's going to demonstrate that passion that we've already mentioned once or twice in this recording. First one's from you, Charlotte, and Twitter. Kicking off, Nicholas Wilkinson at Workshop 69. He said, It took a while to come to terms with its bleakness, but you eventually feel there's some hope behind that too. And the Holy Bible is not as dark as you first feared, and parts of it could still be uplifting in a bizarre way. The Manics are their most majestic and my favourite album of all time. Beautiful. Very nice. Stuart, Jesse Custer72, has said the Holy Bible is a classic album, so bleak at times, but also so listenable. Jeff, that's uh, Jeff Bardi at Twitter, uh, said that the album is like a Hieronymus Bosch painting set to music. Still sounds unique all these years later. Love it as much now as I did then. And you know what, Jeff, I completely agree. You know mm-hmm. what, Jeff, I'm really glad Paul read that out, because I was thinking, I can't pronounce Hieronymus. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw it on the yeah. paper, <laughs> I I love Hieronymus Bosch's work. It's yeah. like it's this awful like mix. It's like a Where's Wally painting from hell, and like that's pretty much like what I can imagine the Manics to be thinking about when they came up with the Holy Bible. I'm uh, I'm unaware of the work, but I will have a look. Oh, I don't Tower of Babel by Hieronymus Bosch. Okay, onto the emails indeed. Chris Lindsay says the Holy Bible is one of the greatest pieces of art in any medium that was produced in the second half of the 20th century. Second half. <laughs> Take on the 20th century's horrors, both personal and political, and wrestle them through the dominant pop art form of the era. Rock and roll is such a pure, almost naive thing to attempt, but they succeed due to a potent mix of talent, range, and beautiful belief that rock and roll can matter. I think that is a beautiful way of putting it, Chris. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and similar sentiments from Kirsty Hood. Uh, when she was 16 years old uh, was when she first heard motor- Motorcycle Emptiness, and she was hooked on the Manics from then. Their lyrics, their look, James's voice, perfection. She's now 41, and they're still her favourite band ever. Next up is Ian Orkes, which I'm hoping I pronounced your surname correctly. If not, I very much apologise. She doesn't. <laughs> and he says that the Manics have long been my favourite band. Delving back through lyrics and the band's literary influences meant they were a useful emergency reference kit for university assignments. It probably wasn't until I started hanging out with other musical friends in Bedford in my mid-twenties that I met that I met people that not only liked the band, not only owned a copy of the Holy Bible, not only had an opinion of it, but viewed them as with the same importance one does when talking about Radiohead or the Smiths. The Holy Bible era manics are heavily influential in the formation of my leopard print clad street gang, the Glitter Girls. Ian, I want to be in the Glitter Girls. <laughs> Ian, I, I've already asked you, I need some Glitter Girls photos. Has he not sent any yet? I did Send see you reply Glitter email. Girls photos. <laughs> yeah, Ian, if you're listening today, someone will tell you you've had a mention. Please send us some Glitter Girls pictures. I genuinely want to see that. And if there's some sort of sweet, like, secret handshake or badge, only send them to me. I want to be in it. I don't want Mark in the gang. <laughs> All right. Right, moving on. Anne England, thank you very much for emailing us. You've said, in the early 90s I was in a bit of a musical wilderness, being busy raising my first two sons. 
and counted the manics who everything must go. Still a favourite. Then started trawling through their back catalogue. Hearing the Holy Bible for the first time was like having all the breath knocked out of me. It was and still is the most viscerally thrilling thing I'd ever heard and the hardest to listen to. Merciless, raw, full of jagged edges. It's suffused with the most brutal humanity. There's never been anything like it for me before or since. A masterwork. Wow. And this is why we're giving a bit of an extended period and time <laughs> for these emails because, my God, you guys have really gone to town. Normally just get, yeah, it's good. But honestly, <laughs> you guys have really blown their minds. We like Manix fans. Okay, another really great email from Justin McNichol here. So he says, The Holy Bible is an, ut- is an utterly central point of my life from my 16-year-old self. It started with a videotape, a series of bootleg videotapes that were doing the rounds at my school. A close friend passed me the videos and warned me, don't get too close. I was shocked by his comment, but even more enthralled to find out the big deal. The bootleg videos were a series of concerts, TV performances and fan comments on the Manics from 1991 to 94. The grainy 94 footage of Glastonbury, Reading Live and MTV footage of the band in their chaotic and tortured form did I understand my friend's warning. I borrowed a copy of the CD and listened to it four times in a row and realised I knew nothing. My world opened up after that and inspired me to go on to work in mental health to support those so affected by a variety of severe and enduring mental illnesses. The album is a touchstone to so much and it will forever inspire me to reach for more knowledge, wisdom and strength in all aspects of my life. It's mad to think this was in the dark days of the troubles in Northern Ireland, the Manics were a guiding light for me. I think that's a really beautiful thing to hear, that this guy has been so influenced by Mannix that it's not only helped him to discover his passion as a career, but it's also helped him get through some really turbulent times in a nation's political and and, and, uh, social history. That's pretty amazing, really. Yeah, one band, one album, and giving that much hope and that much relief to one person. Brilliant. Fantastic. One more email, I believe. Who is it for? Yeah, so this is Emma Lois. Um, yeah, strap yourselves in. It's a, it's an essay, this, but it's well worth it. Um, so Emma writes, I first discovered the Manic Street Preachers in 1996, just before starting secondary school. I heard a design for life on Radio 1 whilst hiding in my room and initially hated it. I wondered why the guy was shouting and didn't understand the lyrics at all. Why was he singing about getting drunk? How annoying. However, a few days later, I heard it again and something clicked. The music affected me deeply. I was hooked. I knew I had to find out more about them, and living in pre-internet times, that meant going out of my pocket money and slowly buying their back catalogue alongside pick-and-mix suites and even rummaging through the CD bins in Oxfam, coming across some real gems in the process. She says that I once bought a huge stack of their singles for a fiver. That's an absolute bargain. (laughs) Uh, I got hold of the Holy Bible aged around 13, 14, during which time I was struggling a lot with depression, taking medication to try and control my mental illness and regularly self-harming. Generally, I was having a pretty rough time. When I bought the al- brought the album home, I still remember being blown away by the album sleeve, how incredibly beautiful yet strange the band looked that- during that period and realising that I was holding something really special in my hands. I was so excited. I learned all the lyrics and really connecting and understanding what they meant in a deep and quite disturbing way, as well as relating a lot with what Richie Edwards was writing about. The song Yes in particular impacted me the most. It's such an upbeat song musically, extremely listenable, and even radio-friendly until you read through the lyrics and actually see what James is singing about. Bloody hell, those lyrics were me. Uh, a little summary of my feelings during my teenage years and it's still my favourite long uh, song alongside Archives of Pain. Musically, I love the way the UK version sounds. Claustrophobic, dark, helpless, frustrated, just like the lyrics. Even though it's regularly mentioned in music magazines as one of the darkest albums ever, it is a shame that it isn't as popular as it deserves to be. However, maybe it's better as a very niche album, something special and even secret. Something about the darkness of the album is soothing to me still. It definitely helped me to come to terms with the feelings of guilt, pain and anger that I had as a young person. I think that's absolutely beautiful, that. Um, Yeah, thank you, Emma, for getting in touch with that one. 
Strong girl, opening up like that. Fantastic. Now I feel like a bit of a fool. After such moving stories from people, we're going to move on to the Remember the First Time quiz. I had to choose a silly one, didn't I, to follow such moving emails. Didn't think this one through. <laughs> but, maestro, play the music, please. This week's quiz, this week's, this month's quiz is following Play Your Cards Right. Wow. <laughs> Wait a minute. Not too many questions. I'll explain the rules. Are you confused. Are you taking up the role of Bruce Forsyth? I am. I can't quite work out how we're going to score this, but I'll figure it out as we go along. Okay. okay. <laughs> That's all the best quiz shows. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just so we know, the leaderboard at the minute is myself on two, Charlotte on one, Paul, you haven't got anything, so the pressure is on. Yeah, that's how I want it to be. Right, so, what's going to happen is, we're going to start with the Holy Bible. Well, I was going to do this just on Holy Bible chart positions across the world, but I couldn't find that many out. So, <laughs> I had to adapt it a little bit. <laughs> and we're going to go, from starting at the Holy Bible, we're going to go through all of the Manic studio albums, not best of, just studio albums. Okay. And you have to tell me whether they're higher or lower. Easy peasy. Now, the score is going to go like this. We're going to start on... I'm going to ask you a question. Whoever gets closest starts. You keep going till you, until you get one wrong. Then the other person takes over. Okay. And when they get one wrong, the other person takes over. It, at the end, it's whoever's got the most. Okay. So in total, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. This is not all There's ten after Holy Rival. So <laughs> the maximum ten points. You are really proud of yourself. Just... This is a great game. <laughs> I have no doubt it's a great game. I'm... Go ahead. Right then, so, first question, there's one question in this, so the rest is just random. Yep. How long, in minutes and seconds, is the whole Bible album? Right. What have you gone for, Charlotte? 53 minutes, 17 seconds. Wow, that's really specific. I know, yeah. <laughs> I've gone for one hour and six. Right, Charlotte's one. <laughs> How long is it? Well, I know, because I was like, wow, you've got the second try. Yes. 50, uh, no, you said 52, 17. Yeah. 56, 17. Not Three minutes bad. out on oh, the dot. That's not bad. Right then, so Charlotte, do you understand the rules? I give you, we start with sort the... Of. Yeah, right. Mark. So we'll go higher and lower every time. That's it. Mark. Do you understand the I rules? I understand the rules. <laughs> Definitely. I'm just struggling to write this. <laughs> I'm just struggling. There we go. All right, poorly. Right. Just in case. You might not have a go if Charlotte gets all the way through this. So, Holy Bible charted number six in the UK. Next album up, Everything Must Go. Where did it chart? Higher or lower than six? In the Danish charts. The Danish? Oh, <laughs> Told you it'd be fun. I'm, I'm, I'm invested now. I'm still going to say higher. Higher than five? At six? Yeah. Oh, you're wrong. It went in, a, it was number 40. Oh. Really? Yeah. The Danish. Right yeah. then. So they, they obviously don't appreciate the manics. <laughs> Next, this is my truth, tell me yours. Where did it chart? Remember, Danish 40. Yeah. Finland. Higher. Higher? Correct, at number one. Nice. You've got one there. Oh, right. Big discrepancy between two Scandinavian nations. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Next, Know Your Enemy. Where did it chart? In Ireland. Can't get this wrong. Lower. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can't have the same because yeah, you'd be out. Exactly. So I just want to yeah. cut that rule out. <laughs> it's a new game. Okay. I couldn't think of a good pun for it though, unfortunately. Um, right then, so moving on. Next album, next studio album from the band was Lifeblood. Ireland, it charted at five, know your enemy. Where did Lifeblood chart in the UK? Higher or lower than five? Higher. Incorrect. It charted at 13. So have I got two so points? So you've on got this? two points okay. on that. Moving over to Charlotte, who's still on zero so far. Pressure's on. Lifeblood. Lifeblood charted in the UK at 13. Send away the Tigers. Where did that chart? Also in the UK. Higher or lower than 13? Higher. Correct. Well done. Send away the Tigers got to number two in the UK. Next up, we've got Journal for Plague Lovers. Where did that chart in? Holland. 
I'm going to say lower. Correct. 88. <laughs> Two for Charlotte. We've only got one, two, three. Four more nature? left. Four more left. Wow, it's two all. It's two all. It's close. I ain't got a tiebreaker, so I hope someone wins. <laughs> um, next is postcard for Young Man. Where did that chart in, and I didn't know these charts existed, the Scottish charts? I'm going to say higher. Higher than 88? Yeah. You sure? Yeah. Correct. <laughs> Number two. Okay. <laughs> Scottish chart. Yeah, no, I was like, what? I didn't know they existed. Hi Scotland. <laughs> Hi Scotland. Um, right next, not too far away. I think it was about 2011. I want to say we ran, rewind the film. So obviously, postcards chart at number two in Scotland. Where did rewind the film chart in the UK? Higher or lower? Lower. Correct. Number four. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, Futurology. Not the last album, but the one before. Chart. Where did it chart? In Japan. Higher or lower than four in the UK for the previous album? Mm-hmm. Japan and Futurology. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say higher. Oh, incorrect. <laughs> chart number 36. Oh. Last one. Uh, Am I playing for Pride? No, yeah, well, yeah, for Pride. Yeah. You, Charlotte's on four, you're on two. You can't, you can't win, but you're going to try and yeah. capture it back. Futurology charted at number 36 in Japan. Resistance is future. Futile. Where did it chart in Spain? Higher or lower than 36? Lower. Incorrect. Damn it! I've not really marked you down as three. <laughs> Incorrect. Between you, you've got six points out of possible ten. Not bad. Not, not bad not at all. Terrible. Not bad. This has been Manic Street Preachers. Play your cards right. Maestro. <laughs> That's about it. Quiz is done. We spoke about the album. I think it's all fair to say we, uh, we quite enjoyed it. Yes, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely, absolutely. So, coming up next is the big one. No, it's not. Coming up next is what songs are we having? Oh, I forgot again. It's not on the playlist. I forgot it wasn't on the playlist. So, what are we adding to the Remember the First Time playlist? I've made a note. I need to find my note. So, tell us how the playlist works, Paul. So the playlist works in the way that we choose one song from the album to be added to the playlist. Uh, then we also choose a song that we've been listening to uh, just in general that gets added to the playlist as well. So you get some nice classics, but you also get some contemporary pieces as well. Fantastic. Yeah. So what we're going to put off the album, I'm going to stick my hand up in the air and say, Reborn. I'm going to put my hand up there as well. Okay, well, I was going to say faster, but I'm happy for Revolve to go on. Well, it's a democratic decision, so it's too Revolve it is. Revolve it is. Welcome to the playlist, Revolve. You are well-deserved. Faster would have been as well, to be fair, but Revolve it is. So, current songs, where are we going, Charlotte? Ooh, for me, it is Eve of Destruction by the Chemical Brothers off their brilliant new album. Nice. I've not heard that album yet. It's very good. It's Chef's Kiss. Oof! Hey, chef. I put that on in on in the car on the way. Oh, you'll be speeding. Top one of the year. I'm going. It's your top, top one, one of the year. Top one. Wow. wow. <laughs> of the list. Bowl, how many? At one. least five. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, what are you going for? Uh, I am going to add Danny Nadelko by Idols. Um, yeah, like they've they're one of the few bands recently that I've kind of felt as passionate about as Manix fans have felt passionate about and their performance at Glastonbury was something to behold so yeah I think they're the political band that we need at the moment so they are getting onto the playlist fantastic I am going to go for Mick Signals by The Night Cafe every time I hear The Night Cafe I'm just like I love this track so much they're just is, is better it, and better is it cafe or cafe? 
<laughs> I don't mind evil, mate. I just really enjoy hearing you say cafe. Cafe. Not cafe. I've not even noticed that. I know it's a cafe. <laughs> you know what I can't stand? People to say calf. It's not a calf, it's a cafe. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, Mixed Signals, <laughs> The Night Cafe. Great track, great band. Every time I hear them, I just love them and I can't wait for their debut album that's mm. released. It may be next month, but it's soonish. Great. So, yeah, uh, we'll put out some social messages to. Uh, promote the playlist again but do listen do subscribe to it as you can with the podcast make sure you check us out on all your favourite channels but don't just listen to us once subscribe and you'll get to hear us month on month what a treat if you can listen to us as many times as you want really you can Charlotte how can they get in touch on social they can get in touch by following at RTF time on Instagram and also on Twitter can they email us they can how? What's the address? <laughs> um, I forgot. So. It's do you at remember the first time, and we want you to get in touch. Yes. <laughs> okay. Do you at remember the first time dot com? We'll if you're gonna well be pedantic, here. be pedantic properly. <laughs> so we want you to send us emails. Give us your thoughts on the manics if you want, but we won't talk about them too much because we've covered it now. <laughs> Uh, but we don't really give a shit anymore. <laughs> we'll still read them, we'll still enjoy them, well, and we'll still share them. We've had we've got a new now. feature coming on, on the website yeah. soon. We're going to start demoing, demonstrating how we make these episodes, how, where we research this stuff on, and start sharing some links with you guys. You're very passionate and get in touch with us. We want to share some of the stuff we find out with you too. So do share things with us, we'll share things with you. It's mutually beneficial. Um, also, though, do get in touch about Oasis's Definitely Maybe because that's the next album that we are going to feature on the podcast. Obviously, both released on the first day, but we've got busy lives. Our content schedule has made us release Manic Street Preachers Holy Bible a little bit early, but we'll be releasing Oasis Definitely Maybe around the anniversary. So get ready for that in August. I think that's about it for now. Say goodbye, Paul. Goodbye, Paul. <laughs> Say goodbye, Charlotte. Goodbye, Charlotte. <laughs> Say goodbye, Mark. Goodbye, Mark. And on an ending note, I'm just going to touch on a James Dean Bradfield quote that Charlotte very nicely put into the running order that I liked a lot and I picked up. In 1991, James Dean Bradfield said, we'll release one double album that goes to number one worldwide. One album, then we split. If it doesn't work, we split anyway. Either way, after one album, we're finished. Well, I'm bloody glad they didn't stick to that. Holy Bible, you have been a pleasure.